Well, as hard as it is to believe, the holiday season is upon us. I mean, it's about time to start seeing those pre-Christmas ads, if you can believe it. Mid-October, things change. Uh, Thanksgiving is five weeks away. Uh, Christmas is a mere 71 days away. Trust me, I've counted. It's my favorite holiday. It was last November when author and psychologist Dr. Jonice Webb commissioned a study that revealed what most of us know instinctively, and that is lots of us experience stress and anxiety at the holiday time, and over half of that stress and anxiety is related to obligatory family interactions. And that's usually what gets a laugh. It, it turns out Ellen Griswold of Christmas Vacation fame was right when she famously said, it's Christmas, and we're all in misery. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, that's how the holidays feel. WebMD has an entire section devoted to family-related holiday stress management. And for a public service, I'll give you... There are three of the many reasons why uh, these stressors... Uh, seem to be more intensified during the holiday season. Uh, one is some unhappy memories you might have if you associate the holidays with perhaps a death in the family or some kind of ugly conflict. Um, this time of year will naturally bring some of those memories back. You could have toxic relatives. Uh, these are uh, people that you wouldn't hang out with uh, the rest of the year, but you are forced into a room with them. Uh, and then there's this other piece that we don't often consider, and that is, is that we have our defenses often lowered during the holiday season. Um, you're more likely to be stressed out by obligations and errands and finances. Um, it's the end of the year, and you're spending more money than you ever did throughout the year, which seems odd. Uh, it's the cold and flu season, and your immune system is likely under some type of assault. Um, you're eating worse and stressing less, you're drinking more probably, and by the time the family gathering rolls around, you are worn out, tense, and fragile. I think that's a pretty good characterization. Uh, recently, uh, I had family in town, and I, of course I have my own family, and I am the center of stress in my family, so uh, I was actually frustrated in that season um, by what I perceived as my higher commitment to serving others than they were to serving me. And I um, uh, embarrassingly admit to you today that I actually said out loud to myself, and not in the ancient past like recently, uh, how come nobody's serving me? Now, I'm embarrassed by that, and I'm, I'm embarrassed that I mention it even, but I've learned over time that if I get to the place where I actually verbalize, let alone think to myself, uh, I'm serving everyone and no one's serving me, I need to stop, slam on the brakes, and consider some things. And so I share those with you out of my personal nutsness and, and see if you can't have any of these be a benefit to you. Uh, there are three things I stop to consider whenever I would say something along the lines of, how come I'm doing all the work? One is, you're likely exaggerating. Uh, we are served more by others than we are actually aware. Maybe we're selfish by nature. Perhaps some of us have a tinge of narcissism in us. I can assure you that we're being served way more than we know. Secondly, 
you are nowhere near, and neither am I, of deserving anyone's purpose in life being to serve you. Uh, you aren't deserving of that. I'm not deserving of that. I don't know what you think you've done that is so incredible. I can assure you I've done nothing that deserves people's lining up, uh, family members lining up to say, you know what, my purpose in life, serving you. Why wouldn't they? Uh, And then thirdly, I'll say most obviously to the Christian, God is and has served you way more than you could ever serve everyone west of the Mississippi. It's not even conceivable that you could serve God more than He's served you. Today in John 13, we've come upon what's a well-known narrative about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Uh, The last days with His disciples uh, provide us some beautiful picture of the cleansing work of Jesus, a work that our Lord knew was about to begin. And Jesus washing the disciples' feet also gives us a blueprint for Christian service. However, beyond the rich metaphors, on its face, what we have is an amazing picture of the character of God. Once again, the beauty of the incarnation, God moving from eternity into time, God saying, you don't have to guess any longer about what I'm like. I'm going to give you a physical manifestation of that so your senses, all five of them can engage and you can say, this is the character of of our majestic, holy God. Before uh, we discuss what Jesus' foot washing teaches us, there are two brief introductory observations I have. Uh, When I read the scriptures in preparation for sermons, or even in my time with the Lord, reading and praying on a daily basis, I, I will do what many of you would do, which I would just kind of read it and think, you know, what kind of jumps off the page to me? What what seems important to me. Uh, and that's before I ever get around to reading a commentary or digging into some kind of research about the topic. Uh, I, w- I would just, on a personal level, think that's odd. A- and so these are just my observations that I think are really encouraging to me. The first would be that Jesus knows all things. And by comparison, the disciples know very little. And so without even talking about the metaphors and the purposes for the foot washing, I would just say I was struck by these three verses. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. Uh, It should be and is a comfort that Jesus is aware of all things. He knew when he was going to be turned over to die. He knew who he was going to betray him. And yet he was able to focus on the task at hand, which was meeting with his disciples and passing on to them something really important. Uh, Jesus was not surprised by the betrayal of a friend. And he is not surprised by those in our lives who hurt us or those who are enemies quote-unquote, that we face. And we'll get to unpacking the whole phrase about enemies in just a bit. It is a comfort to us that Jesus, the incarnate God, also has in His divine nature the capacity to see and know that God is sovereign over all. His Father is working all things together. And that should give us great comfort that He knows those things. The other thing uh, I was encouraged by is, is... that Jesus sets an example uh, as a means to his blessing. 
In verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. But in verse 17, he he even goes further to explain, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And it rings true with other things Jesus has said when he said there's more joy in giving, there's more blessing in giving than receiving. Some of these countercultural upside-down values of Jesus' kingdom come into play, and then Jesus says something along the lines of, if you will serve everybody, there is great blessing there. There is a means to blessing. Obedience sometimes is difficult, uh, and, but it's always primarily about showing love for God, um, doing what brings God joy, making much of God's character. This is what obedience, in essence, should be for us, a way for us in relationship with our Father to say, I'm going to do something that's difficult because you ask me to, uh, command me to, and because it would please you. And when we do some of these things, uh, what happens is, is that God is seen in us. People who uh, need to see God's love and be changed by Him, they see Him in us. And he said to us, though, that if you want to experience blessing, joy, there is a pathway to that, and that is through obedience to him, following his example. It's a means of experiencing greater spiritual joy in life, and here's why. Uh, Through following his example, we begin to live in harmony with how we were made. In Genesis, it says that God created us in his image. So when you and I actually begin to live as Jesus lived, we experience what the New Testament calls keeping in step with the Spirit. There's a rhythm to it that says, you know, this is right. This is how I was made. I was made in the image of God, and now I am actually walking as God walks. And there is a a blessing and a joy that comes with that. When we decide, hey, I was made in the image of God to walk as the Lord walked, but I'm going to do it my own way, on my own plan. I'm going to disobey His Word. I'm going to act in ways that are countercultural or, or counter to the way His kingdom works. We end up in a place of not blessing, of sadness, of something that will take us further away from the Lord. So, Through living this and following his example, we get to experience blessing. Now, let's revisit the example real quick. Verses 4 through 7 of John 13, it says that Jesus, after having supper with his disciples, he laid aside his outer garments, he took a towel and tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Uh, It was clearly intended to be a symbolic act, uh, symbolic both of cleansing and of humble service. Uh, The most obvious symbol was that Jesus was going to cleanse us from our sins. Uh, Both of the great instituted communal acts of the last week of Jesus' life, which is where we are in the Gospel of John, um, are 
are intentionally tied. Those two acts are this foot washing and, and then communion, the Lord's Supper that is celebrated against the, uh, with the Passover meal. These were intentionally tied to Jesus' knowledge of the moment in time. We read in verse 1 of our text today, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what Jesus is doing now is, is reinforcing, I'm about to do something. You're not going to understand it now. Give it some time. Within the week, he would be crucified, die, be buried, and resurrected. And they would discover and understand the significance and the symbolic significance of what he was he was doing. And certainly, Jesus is demonstrating that we're to serve others. Uh, there's much more embedded in this than simply do good. And oftentimes, when you hear people give messages about um, following Jesus' example, you know, it's usually followed up with, and go out there and try to wash people's feet. And I would encourage you that that would be an awkward social thing for you to do this week. Um, so, there is something greater in play here than just giving you a specific task to do for those in need. Uh, There, beneath the surface of Jesus' actions, are two things He was teaching us that get to the heart of the matter, which is namely our hearts. His example is going to expose exactly why we need grace. What he is challenging us to do is going to expose exactly why he needed to die for our sins. So let's begin with what his example teaches us. And the first is this. His example teaches us to love our enemies. Jesus said in verses 10 and 11 of John 13, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus does an amazing thing. He washes Judas's feet. Think about that for a minute. You know somebody's trying to screw you over. You know somebody's trying to to hurt you, to harm you. You know somebody's actively benefiting from your misery. And what Jesus does is actually serves them. Later, he'll serve Judas communion too. Jesus states that because of his work, the disciples will be cleansed of their sins. All but one. And in verse 2, we are reminded, and this is really something else, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, we see that Judas came to the supper intent on deceiving and betraying Jesus and that Jesus knew this was going to happen. I, I, on a side note real quick, uh, this is the first mention, and as far as I know, the only mention of Judas's dad. 
Uh, and I, I really feel bad for poor Simon Iscariot, um, who may have had a good name at one point in his life, but now he's forever codified in the Scriptures for all eternity. The grass withers and the flower fades, and we will know forever that Judas Iscariot was Simon's son. That's got to be a disappointment. You know? Anyway. Um, Jesus once again instructs us not just to do as He says, but to do as He does. I mean, it's one thing to teach, love your enemies, but Jesus goes to the cross and returns to the Father. Before He does this, He shows us. I'm willing to do this too. I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do. I am going to show you how to do this. He actually puts himself in a service position with his enemy. Now, theologically speaking, this is what Jesus is doing with all of us, which may be disturbing for some of you to hear. He's going to allow himself, we're morally his enemies, he's going to allow himself to be sacrificed in order to make enemies his friends. And this is what Romans 5.10 says. It says, if we were, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? It's not the only place, Romans 5.10, that we are referred to as naturally God's enemies. And teaching about loving our enemies has been a recurring theme in Jesus' ministry. Both the Gospels and the Apostolic Letters record such things. Jesus, on His famous Sermon on the Mount, said this, Matthew 5, 43-45, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your, he- of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's significant that Jesus would give us the reason why we're supposed to love our enemies. In our case, the grace of God is supposed to be shown to people who are just and unjust. He, God, gives and takes care of people who have no interest in Him whatsoever. He reigns on the unjust. He allows them to prosper. Some of the wealthiest people in our world are some of the most antagonistic towards God, and God keeps providing for them. And he's saying to us, if I can do this, you need to do this. It's instructive, too, that the Apostle Paul uh, was following the example of Jesus, uh, certainly echoing the teachings of Jesus and how he was making disciples or creating followers amongst the Gentiles. He wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, 14 through 17, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. You see, in Paul's teaching, a recognition of his own brokenness. He's saying, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. He's saying, I am as low as anybody else. My anxious and negative thoughts, they, they don't come from the Father. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. 
I, from time to time, as you may have experienced in life, have had bad encounters with people. Some have intentionally harmed me. Some have unintentionally harmed me, but harmed me nonetheless. Some uh, people have uh, just, uh, I would just say, uh, there are relationships that remain painfully unreconciled in my life. Um, And some of that I'm still working through in my own world. But I know that as I work my way in life with some of these more challenging relationships, there are times where the name or the thought of that particular person will come to mind and I will experience a tightening in my stomach, almost a, a, in the pit of your stomach. You, I mean, that person's name, that person at work, that family member, that, that ex, uh, whoever that ex may be, you, 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 when you think of them, you think, and, and, and sometimes what will happen is out of the abundance of our heart, and I'm a master at this, I'll, I'll start to hear stuff come out of my mouth and I'll go, that is not good. Something in me is wrong. My mouth is a terrific barometer of what's wrong with my soul. And I will say things. Or, and then I realize I came face to face with this teaching of Jesus that we're to love our enemies. We're supposed to pray for those who persecute you. And so I did this really interesting practice. I, and this happened about 10 years ago. I started putting into practice something. Uh, and that was I reasoned, and follow my logic here if you can. Uh, this is the Presbyterian in me coming out. Uh, that if these thoughts aren't from my sinful nature, which they conceivably could be, they, there's a really good possibility, biblically speaking, that our enemy, Satan, is actually just filling my mind with all kinds of really evil thoughts tempting me to think bad thoughts about people, tempting me to repay evil with evil. And so I reasoned that the last thing in the world that our enemy, the devil, would want me to do would be to pray for people. So as soon as this person's name came to mind or this person's, uh, the feeling of discomfort or angst that would come over me, what I did was I said, I'm going to start praying for them and then the devil's going to quit bringing them up. And you know, it worked. Uh, the, when, when, when people who I was bitter with, when their, when their name came to mind, I would say, you know, Father, bless them. Bless them. Give them grace. I'm broken and need grace. I'm sure there are people out there whom I've hurt who are right now having to beg you for grace to deal with the memory of me. So I pray for your blessing on them. I pray for your fullness in their life. And you know, by the time I got done praying for them, the anxious, angry thoughts I had were gone. And I'm convinced, again, it's one of my subjective experiences I'll share with you, but I'm convinced it's because we're walking in harmony with how we were created to walk, which is to love our enemies. And when you do that, there's a freedom that actually becomes part of our experience. Jesus didn't simply say, love your enemies. It's not what I'm going to do, but you go ahead and do it. He's saying, do as I do. And and then he shows us. He washes the feet of Judas. That exposes our hearts. It exposes our hearts as wanting vengeance of our own. And as Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, That's the business of the Lord's.
that exposes our hearts of wanting our own way. His example teaches us to love our enemies. Here's the second thing his example teaches us, and that is to lift others up. Verses 12 through 14 says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The language here is very specific, and he is changing his place. His place would be at the head of the table. And you know this feeling if you've ever been the parent or if you've ever been in charge of a meeting that you sit at the table and oftentimes people will turn to look at you. They know you're the leader in the room. And sometimes the table is not round. Sometimes it's long and and you're at an end of it. And a lot of psychological studies and business studies have noted that oftentimes the person who is your greatest antagonist in a meeting will sit on the very end opposite you. It's really a strange thing. So I have this picture in my head of this long table, and unlike the pictures that were drawn by Leonardo da Vinci, they're not all sitting on the same side of the table. I have this idea that Jesus is sitting on one end, and at the other end is Judas fishing out the money bag right opposite Jesus. Now, again, I'm speculating, but hey, this is what you pay me to do. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Jesus... Jesus is in a position of servitude, and he gets up from this and goes, it says, resumed his place. So wherever he was seated, Jesus was clearly the center of this experience for everybody. And he asked them, do you understand what I've done for you? Jesus' example of moving from the lead, the head, the, the worshipped, the center the served position to the position of being servant strikes at our sinful heart's need to be superior to, be, to others and to be served. Jesus, is chal- Jesus challenges us to think about whether we think certain things or certain people are beneath us. In verse 16, it says, Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying there's, there is a hierarchy in the world. There are people who are masters and people who are servants. There are people who are messengers, and then there are people who sent the messenger in a Modern American political context, the White House communications director is the person who has to come and speak for the president, and (laughs) you need to pray for Sarah Huckabee. Wow, what a job that would be. But at the same time, this is it. She's not the president. She's just the spokesperson. She, in the world of power, she is not greater than the, the White House communications director is not more powerful, not more important than the president. And in the world of service, we have a person in your workplace who is the supervisor and you may be the supervised. If you are the supervisor in your context, then you all in all likelihood have a board of directors that you have to report to. 
there's always somebody who's above and somebody who is below. There is always somebody who is the servant and somebody who is the master. And what Jesus is doing here in this situation is taking on the role of the lowest member of the household, the house servant, the house indentured slave. This is somebody who got in over their head financially, potentially, and and then said, I have to work for you in order to get out of this debt. And so they were given a job of washing the feet. Now, Jesus even says, you know, if you have a bath, you don't need your whole body washed, just your feet. And what he means by that is is in their context, (laughs) they wore sandals and they didn't have paved roads and a lot of grass in the Middle East, and so their feet would accumulate quite a bit of crud along the way. And if you're a farmer, we don't need to talk about what else got on your feet. But you're coming into the house now, and like anybody else, you'd say, hey, wipe your feet. you know. And, and so they'd come into the house, and somebody would actually get down on their knees and with a bowl of water wash the crud off their feet so they walked around the house and didn't track dirt or other things into the home. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to take the lowest role in the house, the lowest member of the hierarchy hierarchy in our situation. I'm going to be the servant who washes your dirty feet. The word servant in Greek is doulos. It means bondservant. Now, in the New Testament, this is not a captive slave, one who is taken against their will, but uh, in ancient times, it was like the equivalent of taking out a loan. You'd, you'd owe money and you'd work off your debt. Uh, the Mosaic Law of the Old Testament provided protections for anyone in servitude, um, sort of like the, I would call it the uh, ancient equivalent of uh, what we call OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They come out to your job site and make sure everybody's wearing a helmet or everybody's um, being treated fairly. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law had very specific prescriptions for people who were indentured to you. In the New Testament times, a doulos or a servant is best described as a bond servant, and that's someone the uh, Roman Empire would officially bind to somebody under contract for seven years. And then when that contract expired, the person was freed, they'd be given the wage that was saved by their master, and then officially declared a freed man. So it was a, it was a business arrangement. And what's cool about this is how Jesus uses this same term, doulos, to describe his role in our lives, his kingdom's mission. And Significantly, in one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Jesus uses the same term doulos to describe his definition of greatness. Mark 10, verses 42 through 45, the word servant used here is doulos. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your Dulos, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be dulos, slave, servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be a dulos and to give his life as a ransom for many. The rubber hits the road in our Christian faith as to whether or not we think we need to be served or we should be the ones being served. And you can see how twisted it can get around in your head where you think, hey, I think I'm great, 
therefore I should be served. And Jesus says, well, first of all, let's, we can have a whole discussion about whether or not you're great. But beyond that, I'm going to redefine great. Great is going to be the person who's the servant of all. So if you think you're great, in the Christian kingdom language, in the world of Jesus, being great doesn't entitle you to being served. You want to be great? Great! You get to serve everybody else. Want to be a leader in the church? You know what that means? You get to serve everybody else. Want to be a leader in your family? That means you get to serve everybody else. Want to refer to yourself as a mature Christian? Then that's going to be measured by whether or not you are serving everybody else. I have, in my life, had a handful of friends who were particularly influential. I won't mention what they do because that kind of, that name dropping is its own issue altogether. So I would just say, you'll have to trust me that they had money and recognition and, and in conversations with me, their, you know, their, their minister friend, uh, they would oftentimes go, I wish I did things like you do. I, I'd feel like it would be significant. And, and I've heard this other people say the same thing, that they wish, maybe I should go onto the mission field instead of doing what I do for a living. And I'm always quick to dismiss that. Now, if God's calling you and you want to go to the mission field, terrific. But Jesus is not talking about a particular vocation. He's talking about a mindset. He's talking about a lifestyle. And quite honestly, the people that are in positions of influence culturally in jobs they probably love and they're doing quite well at have more of an opportunity to reach those in their circle and sphere than I do as the minister uh, in their circle, in their sphere. People are going to experience Jesus as we serve them. So I would say to my friend in show business or my friend in uh, high levels of athleticism or business in corporate worlds, um, what you're dealing with is, is not a call and vocational shift, but a call and attitude shift. Are you here to be the servant of everybody else? Do you see yourself as the beneficiary of God's grace in such a way that you're going to begin to say, today I'm here, and I think in my office, I should be the one who has somebody get me coffee. But you know what I'm going to do today? I'm getting coffee for everybody. That's a simple example. But this is the proactivity that we're called to as Christians. If we want to demonstrate the love and grace of God to others, we're going to have to do the kind of things that actually make people feel like we're saying, we don't think we're hot stuff. We don't think we should be served. And if you have a place of influence in the world, if you want to make a radical difference in the world of the people who don't know Jesus around you, make yourself the servant of all. Do something that's the equivalent of Jesus getting out of his position, his seat at the table, and taking on the servant of everyone else. You want everybody to go, wow, I've never seen that before. That's incredible. That person clearly has an experience they know of Jesus. I would say that most of that, though, is going to be conditioned upon whether or not you have genuinely encountered a servant in God. If you don't know Jesus as someone who has been your doulos, your servant who gave himself for you, 
If that doesn't make you, that doesn't move you, then, friend, you're never going to do the craziest thing in the world, which is give up your power and authority to be the servant of all. In Philippians 2, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Do you, do you see the presumptive statement here? He's saying, if, if there's been any encouragement in Christ, if you've been comforted in any way by His love, if, if you've experienced this, the, His sympathy and His affection, Then, Paul is saying to us, the Scriptures are commanding us to go and to do likewise. But it begins by saying, Lord, perhaps the problem is, I've not genuinely experienced that with you. And today could be the day to see all that change. So let's pray to that end, shall we?